Hello, and welcome to World at Law, a podcast from Carter Perry Bailey discussing the law, business, and the business of insurance and reinsurance. I'm Robert Harrison, consultant at CPB. Now, during lockdown, we're all missing seeing our clients and contacts, so we wish to join you in your living rooms or your kitchen or indeed your daily run. We're all missing our sports as well, whether this is watching it or participating. And with that in mind, with me today is Helen Tilly, partner at CPB. And this podcast is a taster prior to our forthcoming head injury seminar, which has been pushed back because of the lockdown until social distancing is relaxed. That seminar is intended to provide insight from speakers into developments relevant to risk assessment, underwriting and claims regarding head injuries, particularly those sustained during sporting activities. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Robert. If I may kick off to coin a phrase, shortly before the March lockdown, the football associations announced changes to rules on heading in football. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, shortly before lockdown, on the 24th of February, there was an announcement in relation to updated heading guidance for children. This was something that came from all of the football associations in the UK and the rules relating to England, Scotland and Northern Ireland took immediate effect with Wales coming along later on. Effectively, this meant that children between the age of 6 and 11 are not permitted to head a football whilst they're training. And the reason for this is because there are concerns that repetitive head injuries could have ongoing effects. The reason for this particular guidance followed research studies that were published by Glasgow University called the Field Research Study. And this was published in October 2018. Interestingly, the States is ahead of the game here, excuse the pun, because children have been banned from heading in football since 2015. But the relevant issue here is that it's just banning heading during training because it's the repetitive actions which are the real concern here. Well, apart from a repetitive head injury then, what other types of injury are becoming of concern in contact sports? One of the main concerns is what's called the diffuse axonal injury. This can cause shearing injuries and the main concern is that the nerves, also called axons, shear and there's micro-hemorrhaging within the brain. These axons make up the white matter within the brain. The neurodegenerative condition, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, also known as CTE, has been a key focus in sports such as NFL in particular. The field study from Glasgow, which I mentioned before, reviewed just over 7,600 professional footballers who were born between 1900 and 1976. And they actually found that professional footballers were three and a half times more likely to die of neurodegenerative disease than expected. How does that then compare with the NFL? Well, in some respects, surprisingly, the field research study indicated that the risk of degenerative disease was marginally higher than with NFL. On the subject of NFL, in 2018, they brought in what was called the helmet rule because the research which was being carried out in the States indicated that causes of concussion and the types of forces involved identified that it was the helmet-to-helmet contact which, which was a key risk factor. When trying to assess this risk, different methods have been used in order to try to monitor what is actually happening. 
helmet monitors have their limitations because they can't replicate the movement of the brain within the skull. And the more recent types of monitoring have involved sensor-laden mouth guards, which in some respects goes some way to overcoming the limitations of the helmet. But the studies have also shown that it's not just the helmet-to-helmet contact issues that are of concern, but also the sub-concussive incidents, because there was a survey of about 38 NFL players, and they found that in one year, whereas two were concussed, there were also subclinical acceleration and deceleration incidents in the region of 19,000. So this is an area which is involved in ongoing research. And they're particularly looking out for leaks of gandolium. What other research is taking place in the UK then to reduce the risk effects of head injury? Well, in the UK, there is a study called Scrum, which involves the professional rugby players. And this is part of a wider study on concussion called RECOS. This is really exciting because what they're trying to do is develop a pitch-side handheld saliva test. The most exciting thing about this is that the aim is to get a very speedy result and something which will help with decisions to return to play, actually, on the pitch side. One of the key benefits of a saliva test is that it will improve upon some of the subjectivity of existing testing where perhaps questions are asked and observations are made. And crucially, it will help to pick up more subtle presentation of head injury at a much earlier stage and also, as I mentioned earlier, better inform the timing of return to play. Well, I can only think that it's a a, a very good thing to impress on players just how reliable that sort of equipment can become and can become better. Because I remember personally, I was in the pavilion watching the cricketer Steve Smith coming back to the cricket pitch during the Ashes last August after his head injury from the bowl of Jofra Asher. He seemed to be back on the pitch after his concussion assessment after about 40 minutes. And the following day, of course, was substituted. Yes, I mean, he was assessed by the Australian team off the pitch, as you mentioned. And I think he was off for about 40 minutes and judged as being fit to return. But then the following morning, woke up and was feeling dizzy. But the interesting thing about that, it was the first time that an international cricket player had used a new rule which enabled a player to be substituted on the grounds of concussion. And this brought cricket more in step with other sports such as rugby and football. This particular situation also highlighted the relevance that as many as 30% of concussion episodes, according to Cricket Australia's own stats, indicate that symptoms are delayed. And this could be delayed by hours or even a couple of days. The earlier that diagnosis can be reliably reached, the better. The two main reasons for this are, and these are particularly relevant for cricket, First, the symptoms can impair sight and reaction time. So that's the symptoms of concussion. So a cricketer facing a bowler bowling over 80 miles per hour is going to be in much higher risk of a second impact. And therefore, the chances of a larger claim or career-ending disability are much higher. 
And the second concern, and this comes back to rugby in particular and NFL, is that if you have two head injuries close in time, then there's a much higher risk that the overall outcome can be worse. Yes, that's particularly important if you're facing a fast bowler such as Joffrey Archer with speeds over 90 miles an hour. So to what extent can helmets help then? Well, first, they need to be designed and tested as close to the conditions during that particular sport as possible. In the context of cricket, helmets were brought in as a result of express fast bowlers in internationals during the late 70s. However, if you look at recent studies in 2012, they noticed that there were more eye and nose injuries. And what was happening is that even though the distance between the grill and the helmet peak was narrower than a cricket ball, they were getting injuries where the cricket ball was penetrating between that space. This led to further tests more in line with the speeds and the directions of the ball and it led to an improvement, an upgrade of the British standards for cricket helmets. But the key point is that wearing helmets does not always help. They can give the illusion of providing more protection than they actually give. For instance, with bike helmets, it's been found from research that people in cars who are overtaking a cyclist actually take more care if the cyclist isn't wearing a helmet. So it's important when assessing risks that decisions on guidance, mandatory rules and so on are based on scientific evidence because sometimes what you think might be the outcome is different when you actually look at the scientific basis for that. And also, it's really key that the helmets don't impede performance, are comfortable, and they come under mandatory rules where appropriate rather than guidance in order to encourage their use. In relation to Steve Smith, he wasn't actually wearing a helmet with a neck guard at the time. And I think that one of the reasons for that was that he said that he felt that they weren't particularly comfortable and he wasn't happy about performance. So it just demonstrates that that can be a key factor in helmet use. Also, from a legal point of view, when we're looking at concepts of causation and the type and nature of injury which needs to be assessed, whether or not a person is wearing a helmet at all or the most advanced model at that particular time is something that we will uh, give consideration to. But there might be situations where it makes absolutely no difference to the outcome. Sadly, the Australian cricketer, Philip Hughes, he had a fatal injury when a bouncing cricket ball hit the side of his neck in 2014. Um, This caused a vertebral artery dissection, which led to fatal cerebacnoid hemorrhage, which is exceptionally rare. But although the fact that he wasn't wearing um, a helmet that could protect the side of his neck at the time of that incident, although that wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome, it did lead to designs which included neck guards shortly after that. Yeah, I think the point about Philip Hughes's neck injury is interesting in as much as, as you say, albeit provoked a rush for different designs, we are as at Steve Smith's injury in August of last year, 2019, was five years on and no closer to a design which, at least from the player's point of view, has met to complete agreement. There are still players like Smith and like others who refuse to wear headgear that is being designed to avoid these sorts of injuries. 
finally then, what about the use of brain scanning? So when people have a head injury, the first type of scan that they are likely to receive in A&E would be a CT scan. And that's largely to inform the medical staff whether urgent surgery is needed. An MRI scan would then be the next logical step if there are ongoing symptoms or the symptoms don't seem to tie in with what is seen from the CT scan. Interestingly, in America, they've developed a blood test looking for a particular biomarker, a protein called GFAP. And the idea behind the blood test is that within 24 hours of a head injury, they will carry out the blood test in situations where there's a normal CT and they're trying to reach a decision as to whether they should go ahead and carry out an MRI scan. So this is great because it means that rather than there be a week or two or more delay, in certain situations where this blood test is available, they can reach a much earlier decision as to whether it would be appropriate to carry out an MRI. The blood test, which I mentioned, which is looking for the protein GFAP, this was approved by the US Food and Drug Administration in 2018. So it's still in a relatively early stage, but certainly looks promising. But if we compare that back to the saliva test, it's certainly going to be much more practical and much more immediate if the way forward is saliva tests. The advances in brain scanning can also help to distinguish between those cases where functional neurological disorder, sometimes called FND, could be a factor and also therefore justify further investigation. It may be that there has been no death of brain tissue and ongoing symptoms can't be explained by organic physical injury and a psychological response needs to be explored. Um, and investigating this would all help in the process of ensuring that the person has optimum treatment and a plan towards graded increase in activities and also potentially a return to work. Thanks, Helen. Thank you for that fascinating exploration. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If so, please email us with your ideas for future subjects during lockdown and social distancing. We look forward to seeing you at our head injury seminar when that is rescheduled with Helen Tilly and the medical consultants I've referred to. Also, look out for more content on our website at cpblaw.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.